While we watch Ukraine defend its country, global powers position themselves for any potential outcome. This is Brief Before Impact. Good evening and welcome everyone to this episode. I am Matt Parker. Today's brief, we're going to be discussing the effects of this war in Ukraine. But we're not focusing on Russia and Ukraine this evening, but rather powers around the world and how they're making themselves ready and how they've been walking a very fine line uh, between their alliance with Russia, Ukraine, the West, and so forth, and what this means for their, themselves as individual countries. I won't be mentioning entirely that many countries tonight are going to be focusing on the following Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, and China. The reason I'm kind of picking these countries out in particular because they've are historically being in the Middle East, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel. This is a very region known for conflict the past several decades and including now. And then lastly with China because of future potential future impact, uh, Conflict, excuse me, between the United States, the West, and China over the issue of Taiwan. There are many other countries out there that are all taking their own positions. These are highlighting the point that geopolitics, it's messy, complicated, very nuanced, and everything never is very one way, black and white. There's a lot of gray. Whenever we see things on television, uh, an attack or uh, an, an event abroad come up, we might say, why don't we just do this? Won't that be solve it? Won't that be the, you know, take care of things? Advocating just for a single position right at the top. That obvious gut feeling response might sound right in our heads, but the reality is there are so many things at play. We're going to see the common thread between these countries utilizing the Ukraine war as a as a kind of a case study on how geopolitics affects countries all differently, despite their positive or not so positive relationship with the United States and how, again, at the end of the day, how all this affects your life and mine as just Americans. So with that, we're going to be highlighting the reactions of these countries, something we always said in special forces uh, was the second and third order effects, just another way of saying the consequences of the um, of this war and how those geopolitical alliances take place. Before we jump into it, let me take an ad break and then we will get to work. All right, welcome back, everyone. Our first country we're going to talk about is Iran. Uh, I'm starting with Iran because uh, there are a number of things at play right now. Currently, while this war is going on with the United States, um, or, excuse me, between Ukraine and Russia, the United States is trying to broker, uh, revive really, the uh, Iran nuclear deal. The one that the Obama administration uh, signed on to, then Trump's um, pulled out of that deal. Now we're trying to get back into it under the Biden administration. Now, according to Crisis Group, we're going to outline how Iran has been responding to this uh, invasion in Ukraine. Uh, Iran's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine can be summed up in four words. No poking the bear. Barely a month after meeting Putin and hailing what he described as a turning point in these bilateral relations, uh, President Raisi, that's the president of Iran, spoke with his Russian counterpart again on February 24th of this year and decried that NATO expansion is a serious threat. 
Now, Iran's foreign minister likewise blamed NATO's provocations for the crisis while urging a ceasefire. Walking Again, walking a very delicate line here. Put simply, and despite Iran's own experience of losing large swaths of territory to the Tsarist Russia in the 19th century and facing Soviet occupation during and immediately after World War II, the Islamic Republic today can claim few major allies beyond Russia. Russia is one of the few friends they have. Now, Tehran sees few upsides and breaking ranks with Moscow in comparison to the possible results of provoking the Kremlin with anything less than fulsome support. The diplomatic uh, situation it may receive or you know, blowback it may receive from the United States and Europe is really of little consequence to Iran. So in short term, the key question is whether the profound and deepening rupture between Russia and the West is going to essentially scrap this cooperation among world powers negotiating with Iran in Vienna, Austria, over the fate of the Iran nuclear deal, also known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA. Now, through the eight rounds of talks during this Iran nuclear deal that began back in April 2021, uh, and they're approaching a decision point that will either going to revive this nuclear deal or it's just going to be its final demise. So you've got the United States and the P4 plus one. This is what they rank them in the United Nations or how they call them. You got the UK, France, Russia, China, and Germany. Okay, those are the permanent four plus one. And these countries have all worked uh, reasonably well together. Now, it's not going to serve Moscow's interest to see these talks fall apart as a non-proliferation crisis would inevitably follow. Now, Washington has really hammered down on these nuclear talks from a disengagement with Russian diplomats in other forms. So Russian cooperation would be important, not just to concluding the talks, but also in fulfilling its non-proliferation requirements. Here's the example. 2015, Russia took in 11 tons of enriched uranium to bring Iran's stockpile into compliance with the nuclear deal's limits. And that process, which may be replicated with Tehran's present stockpiles. So what they're saying here is that Iran was producing too much uranium, and in order to uh, alleviate Western sanctions on Iran, they Iran had to give 11 tons of its enriched uranium to Russia. So that is how Russia has played a role in the previous nuclear deal. But if these negotiations break down, a shift towards more coercive diplomacy by the U.S. and European states, uh, likely to begin with the International Atomic Energy Agency, and then shift to the U.N. Security Council, could well see the Iran file emerge as another area of a bitter, dangerous contestation, contestation between the West and Russia. This is... The view of some with this nuclear deal is if, in fact, it does not get, um, it does not go through, we will see just a more dangerous um, pushback from Iran uh, in terms of conflict in the Middle East region, being that they are the number one state sponsor of terror. The idea is if we take out these sanctions and they stay within the limits of this nuclear deal, we'll be able to create some stability in the Middle East. And according to the crisis group, they see Russia as a key part of that. Now, here's the challenge as I see it. We're currently at war with Russia, or, you know, Russia is, we're of economic warfare with Russia, we'll put it that way. 
we have brought the whole helm of Western sanctions at their economy. Their Russia's economy is it's falling apart. Uh, its currency, the ruble, has lost tremendous amounts of value. Their oligarchs all over the world are feeling the pinch, uh, not being able to fly their jets or uh, um, travel in their yachts because no one's going to give them fuel. And obviously not being able to do business abroad, the Russian economy is struggling dramatically. And you've seen uprisings within domestic Russia uh, pushing back against this you know, ridiculous war in Ukraine. While we're all that's going on, the United States is asking Russia for help to broker a Iran nuclear deal. Do you see the challenge with that thinking? We're condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine, um, calling Putin a war criminal, and then on this side, we're asking them to help broker a deal between our, ourselves and Iran for, and perhaps giving, make, helping them with the situation. That's hard, a hard, I don't know, hard balance of strike, I suppose, the way to put it. And here's the challenge. Russia has been recently saying, we will help United States with this Iran nuclear deal. But all these sanctions you're giving, putting on us, it's really hurting our economy. We're going to need you to let us do business with Iran in order so we'll help you with this deal. And this is a problem that we'll highlight a little bit later of how if we're going to, in fact, sanction Russia during this war, it has to be complete and holistic through and through. Otherwise, we're just going to lengthen out the conflict in Ukraine by allowing Russia to continue to make money on the markets through selling their energy and uh, funding these operations. So... That is the situation with Iran regarding the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, UAE for short. So the Wall Street Journal reported that both of these leaders, the Saudi Crown Prince, it's Ben Salman, and United Arab Emirates Sheikh Nahan, both recently declined a U.S. request to speak to the Biden by phone. So Biden wanted to call these guys up. They said no thanks. Both of these leaders, however, took phone calls the previous week from Vladimir Putin. Now, this snub of Biden, right, this kind of dismissal of Biden, it stands in a stark contrast to Saudi behavior in 2018 when it ramped up oil exports to stabilize oil prices after then-President Donald Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement and reimposed sanctions on Iran. This is according to the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank in D.C. The Saudis and the Emiratis feel neglected by the Biden administration, which they assess has failed to adequately respond to mounting threats to their security posed by Iran and its proxy militias. Both governments were stung by Biden's criticism of their military intervention in Yemen, the freezing of some U.S. arms cells to their armed forces, and the withdrawal last year of U.S. military forces and missile defenses from their country or their countries at a time when they're facing rising threats from Iranian drones and missiles, including many launched by Iran's Houthi allies in Yemen. So let me, let me interject here for a moment. Think about this. The U.S. is trying to broker a deal with Iran, the number one state sponsor for terrorism. At that same time, the Biden administration is, is pulling missile defenses from both um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE that help defend Saudis and Emiratis from Iranian terrorist attacks. And now that we're in a pinch from an energy standpoint, 
Biden calls these two leaders to say, hey, I need you to ramp up oil production. They're like, no, nah, no thanks, not interested. These leaders are saying, I guess we don't have an ally anymore in America. We need to start positioning ourselves uh, through bilateral relations with other countries to make sure we can you know, push off Iran, um, Iran terrorist operations. This is, I want to see the common thread here. It's never just one single thing uh, for a country that we have an alliance with or we're enemies with. Oh, all we need to do is do X. Whenever you see a headline or a report on the news that says, if we would just do this thing, we could, we could turn the page between ourselves and Russia or, or China. It's never that simple. Don't be pulled in by that very simple explanation. I encourage you to dig deeper. I imagine that's why y'all listen to this podcast in the first place. You want to hear more depth on these issues because you know it's never just that black and white. So again, according to the Heritage Foundation, the Biden administration has also burned its bridges to the crown prince, which is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. Because Biden promised during his 2020 presidential campaign to treat the crown prince as a pariah for his role in the 2018 death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, if you remember reading about that in the papers. The Biden's administration kind of cold shoulder encouraged the Saudis and Emiratis to hedge their bets on U.S. security guarantees by trying to improve their relations with Russia, China, and even Iran. So imagine this. We're pushing hard back against Russia. And we're also kind of giving the cold shoulder to historical allies in the Middle East, the Saudis and Emiratis. So they respond going, well, we have to amp up our own relations with uh, other countries, other powerful countries around the world, including Russia and China and perhaps even Iran. This might not make any sense, but you'd be surprised about how countries can find overlapping areas of interest when it comes to their security and economic needs. And when the West i.e. the United States, takes a more passive role, even a role of appeasement in certain security conflicts, this leads other countries to siloing themselves away from our relationship with, with the United States and finding other routes to protect themselves. This, is, this is, makes total sense on their part. This is what happens when the United States takes that kind of more passive role. So, covered Iran, Saudi Arabia, and UAE. Let's look at Israel and how they are positioning themselves after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Again, according to the crisis group, Israel has been engaged in a very delicate balancing act. Now, one prescribed by its geopolitics, Israel has substantive relations with both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Bennett, has spoken to both uh, Vladimir Putin and Zelensky. Since the war began, and he's offered his to act really as a mediator. Israel sees itself as, in effect, uh, sharing a border with you know, Russia to its northeast and Syria, you know, relying on Putin's continued tacit approval of its airstrikes on Iranian targets there. Large Jewish and Israeli populations reside in both Russia and Ukraine, and over 1.5 million Russian and Ukrainian expats live in Israel. And lastly, Israel is a major U.S. ally and beneficiary that identifies with the Western liberal democratic order. Now, what the Israeli, Israeli media is calling Israel's dilemma has been on display in the government's calculated effort to just walk a very fine line. So they're showing empathy for Ukraine, but without alienating Russia. Now, so Prime Minister Bennett 
He shied away from criticizing Russian aggression or even mentioning Russia in his messages of solidarity with the citizens of Ukraine and support for its own territorial integrity. The Israeli's foreign minister, Lapid, he issued a statement on the invasion's first day condemning the Russian attack as a serious violation of the international order. Orders word he used. He conspicuous, conspicuously avoided the term international law. And it, since then, he's tried to really keep a low profile. Israel has offered humanitarian aid to Ukraine, but it has refused to sell it arms or provide it with military assistance. Israel's security and its policy elite have made it clear there's just too much at stake on the national security front for Israel to jeopardize its relationship with the Russia over the over the invasion. They are concerned that the fallout from the war would lead Putin to increase arms sales to its anti-Western proxies along the Israel's borders, chiefly Syria and Hezbollah and Lebanon, or perhaps step up electronic measures to disrupt NATO operations in the Mediterranean Sea, affecting Israel's own navigation systems. Now, thus far, Russia has assured Israel that it will continue coordination on Syria, though reiterating that it does not recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which Israel occupied in 1967 and later annexed. Another Israeli concern is that the Iran nuclear deal, of course. While Israel may have hoped the war would derail or even slow down the nuclear deal talks thus far, and despite intensifying sanctions against Moscow, the U.S. and European states continue to share a table with Russia in an effort to restore that agreement. Think about this. United States and Israel, Israel's hands down our, our greatest ally in the Middle East. Its greatest enemy is Iran. And currently, the United States is in talks with Iran to alleviate sanctions on the promise that it will not pursue nuclear weapons. And at the same time, we're asking Russia for its help to broker that deal. Are you following this line of thought? From my standpoint, it doesn't make much sense while we have Russia invading Ukraine to simultaneously be pursuing a nuclear deal with Iran and inviting Russia to the table. So Israel naturally has taken a very neutral, almost a neutral position, offering humanitarian support to Ukraine not really condemning Vladimir Putin and Russia's actions, just kind of walking that fine line because it has its own interest in the region. It's with Russia's uh, control over air, um, you know, the airspace in Syria that allows Israel uh, fighter jets to target Iranian uh, proxy militias in this area. So it needs kind of that relationship with Russia. And it's far more important to have that relationship than going and condemning Putin over this whole thing with Ukraine. Again, you see this thread here that it's never just one issue or another, that everyone should jump on the side of Ukraine. No, it's, it, there's always much more to it. Keep this in mind as you think about these geopolitics. Lastly, we're going to talk about China. Always, always have to bring up China because they've got their finger in everything here. So how has China really positioned itself? According to the crisis group, China has... During the Ukrainian crisis, it is bounded primarily by three sets of interest. Number one, Beijing wants to live up to its, quote, no limits commitment of friendship to Russia, one that is underwritten by complementary economic interest and converging views of the world order. Secondly, 
China wants to contain the deterioration of its relationships with Europe and the U.S., and ties that it still sees as important to the continued economic development. Third and finally, Beijing is tied to principles that have long been tenets of its foreign policy, namely the importance of safeguarding all states' territorial integrity and sovereignty and remain in its interest to uphold. For example, Russia's recognition of the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, those are those two breakaway states on the eastern border of Ukraine, it also potentially raises uncomfortable parallels for Beijing to U.S. support for Taiwan, which Beijing claims as part of China. So think about it. If China views Taiwan, which is an independent country, views it, oh, this is a, a, a part of our country that broke away. We're going to bring it back onto the fold. Well, what Putin has done if, essentially with these autonomous uh uh, regions in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, saying, oh yeah, those are their own countries. It gives parallels to what China is saying about Taiwan. And so this is an opportunity for the West to demonstrate how it treats countries, or how it should say treats powers that recognize autonomous states, uh, whether it defies international order or not. Again, according to the Heritage Foundation, uh, China has a lot riding on the war in Ukraine. If the Russians win, Europe will be preoccupied for a long time to come, unable to further the transatlantic consensus that has slowly been building around confronting the challenge posed by China, and more broadly, the defense of the post-Cold War Europe helped the U.S. create. A Russian stalemate in Ukraine would serve that same purpose. But if the Russians were to lose, Beijing will face a West not only re-energized, but united and with an axe to grind. So this goes a long way towards explaining China's support for Russia to date. It benefits China the most if Russia wins or if they just keep fighting long term. But how does all this affect China's calculations closer to home, especially its decade-long design to take Taiwan? Beijing is on its own timetable there, even just from a strictly military perspective. Unless forced to act by an over-move towards formal Taiwan independence, China's not ready to make a move on Taiwan. Xi Jinping and the leadership in Beijing, there are a lot of things, but being rash is not one of them. And besides, they think time is on their side in the broader global competition with the United States, which is Taiwan's principal protector. So indeed, the Chinese think they, they stand much better chance letting what they see as American decline play out than rolling the dice on a risky invasion of Taiwan. I'll emphasize this point before we'll go into our courses of action. Putin, in my view and views of others, he made a calculation to invading Ukraine based upon the signals the West was giving him. It turns out those signals, they were those were very weak, but that's actually not what they ended up doing. The West had been signaling weakness. Putin saw that and took an opportunity and invaded Ukraine. Then, all of a sudden, the West, Europe, United States, NATO, they got very energized, very consolidated, came together, and have been supporting Ukraine since, which has tremendously slowed down Putin's progress inside of Ukraine. Taiwan, they're over here. They're watching this play out. They need Russia to win, or at least Russia to be in a stalemate for a long time. It benefits them. It keeps Europe and the United States wrapped up in this issue rather 
than coming after China for its well, its laundry list of things it's done in the country in the world. This is why it's so important that the West takes a very specific stance in the world. And this is just Matt Parker's opinion here. We can build relationships, have alliances, even have a in a globalized economy, work with our enemies just based on the benefits of trade and so forth. However, there has to be a concise and coherent foreign policy that moves from administration to administration to administration that positions America and its allies in NATO and around the world taking a, a stance of leadership, leading the, the international world order, saying these are the rules that we all apply ourselves to, stay within their bounds, or you'll you know, endure the consequences. It is when America and the West, more broadly speaking, detract from that position of leadership that this kind of stuff happens. That Russia invades Ukraine. That China gets more aggressive on, on Taiwan. That Iran starts launching more missiles at American uh, allies in the region. These are the consequences, the second and third order effects, if you will, on that kind of lack of leadership. All right, let's close out with our courses of action. Most likely is course of action in my assessment. It's likely that each of these powers that I've discussed, they're going to continue a sh- to strike a, a delicate balance between their carefully worded narratives and the reality on the ground inside Ukraine. I suspect as the war continues, each of these countries already has laid out a position that they're ready to enact based upon the outcome of the conflict based upon Russia victory or Ukraine victory for the most dangerous course of action. Bringing this back around to what I've been talking about with allowing Russia to be a part of the Iran nuclear deal, being a part of the brokering that deal at the table. It is the most dangerous course of action to give Russia into any Russian demand in order to sign an updated version of the Iran Iran nuclear deal. By allowing Russia a seat at that table while pursuing the Iran nuclear deal, the U.S. may have given Russia an economic opportunity to selling its energy on the world market via Iran without enduring sanctions. That, in effect, would allow Russia to continue funding its military operations inside Ukraine. This is why the U.S., if we're going to pursue sanctions, it has to be holistic on the Russia economy. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And I certainly appreciate any questions I get on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. As always, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.